Andrea Gibson is an American poet whose authentic and vulnerable words often touch my heart. Whether I read them or hear Andrea reading them aloud on Instagram. Andrea writes as a queer non-binary person who has suffered from chronic Lyme disease before being diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Andrea has shared about both of these illnesses openly, allowing their followers to watch as their body changed from perceived strength to visible frailty. And Andrea then successfully completed all of the treatment that had been assigned to her, assuming that their body was fully healed. But in May, Andrea announced that the cancer had returned. One could conclude, knowing something about Andrea's story, that Andrea knows something about what it feels like to live life in the wilderness, about dry, barren wastelands, about paths that never really allow a person to travel quickly from point A to point B, about longing for tomorrow to be different than it was today. But rather than turning bitter or publicly grumbling, Andrea instead regularly invites others to ponder life's goodness, particularly the places where provision continues to come in deeply unexpected places. This week, Andrea sent an email to the listserv titled Lessons from the Chemo Room. The words within the email are not about how one should prepare for an intravenous drip to sleep under your skin. Rather, the email is a testimony of how one has been sustained in a rather painful place. Hello, sweet community. Andrea writes, before they describe how they're writing from a chemo room where their partner Meg is sitting across the room writing something beautiful. Andrea then continues, when the nurse was logging my vitals, Meg pointed to the screen and said, look, baby, they've got your gender listed as non-binary. A bit later, I heard one nurse say to another, Make sure you use each patient's preferred name. Don't defer to the one on the screen. I imagine people think the chemo place is a sad place. It is sometimes. But it's also one of the most tender places in the world. And who is this? The nurse asks, as Meg covered me in a warm blanket. This is my partner, I said. She takes such wonderful care of you, doesn't she? Said the nurse. She sure does, 
I smiled, remembering the many years I'd instead brace for coldness when outing myself to a stranger. Now I expect kindness. Andrea provides a few more updates, letting the reader know that her body is responding well. They then conclude the email with, I hope you too are feeling gratitude for your life today, everyone. There is so much here to cherish. There's so much here to cherish. Even in the chemo room, there is goodness all around us, even when facing an incredibly unfair diagnosis. There is capacity to see and to receive kindness even when we could grumble and complain about life's harshness. Andrea will tell you that they are no longer a Christian, a decision that has been prompted by the inability of the church in which they were raised to accept them for the fullness of who they now are. But Andrea reminds me often, all the time, of the ways in which God is actively at work in our lives, especially in the wilderness. I wonder how God has met you in the wilderness. How God has met you when you're holding your breath, waiting for the results of the recent MRI. When you're noticing how a beloved partner, spouse, parent seems to be forgetting certain things and you're dreading a visit to the neurologist. When your only child has turned their back on you making you want to say, I am done with her on one hand while longing for the phone to ring on the other. When a relationship that once produced butterflies in the pit of your stomach is now seemingly fraying, falling apart all along the edges. When you're thirsty or hungry and there is no source of sustenance insight. How does God come to you in the wilderness? The Israelites have been in bondage in Egypt for more than 400 years. And yet it seems that in more recent weeks, God is indeed tangibly showing up, meeting them right where they are, leading them finally out of bondage and into freedom in the promised land. Last week we read how God parted a sea, allowing the Israelites to walk through on dry ground before the Egyptians who were pursuing them all drowned. 
They're then led to a different place where we read how the water is bitter. They're thirsty, and so God instructs Moses to take a piece of bark, throw it into the water, and the bitter water becomes sweet enough to drink. Moses then continues to hear them grumbling as they're then led to a place where there is no water. And so they're led to this place where there are now 12 springs of fresh flowing water and 70 palm trees. God has guided them now through muddy ground. God has quenched their thirst. God has led them beside still waters. We who read this account want to conclude that it should now be rather easy for them to simply sit back and to rest in God, to see God as a source of provision, even if God's timetable doesn't align with theirs. But when hunger pains start to sound from their stomachs, the Israelites not only complain again, but they say aloud that it would have been better for them to go back to Egypt, where at least they can eat their fill of food, than to trust that God is going to continue to lead them into the promised land. Their food crisis has led to a faith crisis. Their present anxiety is so rich and abundant that it clouds their capacity to remember God's faithfulness even in recent days. And when the Israelite cries, Israelites cry out to God, God hears their complaints. They cry out to God and God hears their complaints. It is a detail so important that it is repeated four times in this brief passage. And instead of responding with rebuke or anger, God meets their voiced need, allowing the people to see God's glory. What is this? The Israelites ask when they wake up to a fine, flaky substance covering the ground. I suspect we too may ask, what is manna? And not only ask, what is manna, but if we're being honest, we may also want to ask, does God continue to provide in such a way like this? Where is our manna today? There's a natural phenomenon in the Sinai Peninsula. The small body of land that connects Egypt with Israel. The landscape in the Sinai Peninsula is home to the tamarisk tree, a tree on which fruit grows that plant lice typically will puncture, excreting a substance from the juice. The substance then congeals at night whenever the temperatures start to drop, forming it into a white flake or ball. The white flake or ball then melts when the temperature starts to rise as the sun goes up the next day. The fine flaky substance is known to be rich in carbohydrates and sugar, providing it with a sweet taste. And to this day, natives in the Sinai Peninsula will still bake it into a kind of bread 
and call it math. Terence Freetham continues to explain how migratory birds flying in from Africa or blowing in from the Mediterranean are often so exhausted that they can be caught by hand. As a result, one could more easily gather meat for the evening meal. One of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor describes these good gifts that are found within creation, and then she notes how some people reject any attempt to explain the source of manna as something that is commonplace. But then she asks, does manna have to come out of nowhere in order to qualify as a miracle? Or is the miracle that God heard the complaining of hungry people and fed them with bug juice, with food it would have never occurred to them to eat? To put it another way, what makes something bread from heaven? Is it the thing itself? or the one who sent it. How does your bread, your manna, need to arrive in order for you to consider it a miracle? Do your prayers always need to be answered with a perfect loaf of piping hot bread encased in a crispy crust with the butter melted on top in order for you to believe it is a gift from God. In order for you to see God's presence and God's power in what has been provided for you. Or are you able to see God at work all around you? and the compassion and tenderness of people who cross your path. The capacity of people who were able to see you for the fullness of who you are. The myriad ways in which God partners with people with a particular set of gifts to bring about healing in bodies and minds and ordinary blessings which we could never, ever live without. Breath, rest, water, food, community. What would it take for us to embrace all of life as a gift from God? posture that may enable us to see God actively at work in our lives every single day, in spite of where we are or what's happening in our lives. When our Wednesday morning small group gathered to discuss this passage, 
We spent several minutes talking about verse 4. It's the place where we read how God provides enough for every single day. And then adds, in that way I will test them, whether they will follow my instructions or not. I struggle with verses like this one. I struggle with the understanding of God testing us. I hate it when people say everything happens for a reason. Because when we say those words, what we are saying, whether we believe it or not, is that God has this grand plan that includes heartache, pain, and accidents that rob life like that. I do not believe that God is one who tosses a hand grenade our way to see how high we can jump or whether we can jump at all. But here in the text, we read that God tested them. What if God is curious? God knows that the Israelites are about to be led to freedom for the first time after 400 years. Like any of us who have sent our children off to college or given them a little bit of freedom, we don't know how they're going to handle it. God gives them really clear instructions. It becomes even more detailed in the verses that follow for the people to take one omer for every person in their family, nothing more, until they get to the sixth day, and then they're allowed to take enough for two days because God wants everyone to have enough and everyone to be able to also rest. So God offers this test and then quickly realizes what God needs to put into place to fully love these people, to make sure that there is goodness and well-being as well as a full dependence upon God for everyone. God soon learns that the Israelites need a few more boundaries. And when we get to the place in a couple of weeks where God provides the Ten Commandments, we see that God has commanded, don't covet what belongs to your neighbor, even if it's manna. God didn't add that. I'm adding that. And keep the Sabbath. God knows that more will be needed for every person to live freely, abundantly, and fully dependent upon God. Later on, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will teach his disciples to pray every day 
for daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Words we continue to pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. And the teaching on praying then continues with a lesson on anxiety. Do not worry about your life, about what you are to eat or what you are to drink. The community of Jesus' followers is to rely upon God for daily provisions without anxious striving, without hoarding. And so are we. Every day we are presented with a choice. We can serve and trust God or we can serve and trust Pharaoh. We can live as though our provision always comes from God or we can toil as though our provision depends up on us, the sweat of our brow, just how hard we are willing to work. One of these choices, the choice to depend upon God, provides a life of peace and joy and gratitude as we will be able to see miracles, manna, regular provision everywhere. And the other choice will lead to anxiety and a false sense of needing even more, even if it comes at the expense of our health and our neighbor. Our daily decisions when it comes to how much we receive has a far-reaching impact. Jesus will later say to his disciples, that he's the bread of life. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never ever be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. It's a bold statement to make. And yet we continue to believe that whenever Jesus meets us in a tiny bit of bread, and a sip of juice that everything changes. That we are reminded of how we are loved by God deeper than any person can ever love us. That we are forgiven no matter what. And that we are set free to fully live the life that God has called us to live today and on through eternity. What if God really is all around us? What if there is manna everywhere? Even in the wilderness.